Welcome to episode 10 of the Autism Podcast. Uh, this is going to be the final episode of season one, so it's the 10th and final episode. And today it's just myself and James uh, having a chat. Hi James, how are Hi. you? You alright? <laughs> uh, we're just having a chat about, uh, about how things have gone with the podcast uh, and our plans for the podcast and some other things really related to the charity so for example we we wouldn't mind just highlighting the London Autism Group uh, and also I've got a little story that I want to talk about in terms of uh, my son's my youngest son was recently diagnosed as autistic and we had an interesting experience so it'd be good to perhaps talk about that and uh, as I said just talk about future plans for the podcast uh, and season two uh, in particular so yeah how are you doing James? Yeah yeah it's all been good lots of positive comments about the podcast. Yeah true true yeah we've had lots of interest um, lots of hits so we started it in uh, October I think the first episode came out at the end of October last year, we've done nine episodes. This is the tenth, yeah. And um, I have to say, I'm pretty happy with the statistics. Mm. So obviously, we've got access to the stats. And I was having a look at it this morning. We've had four thousand hits uh, in total, but that I'm not entirely sure whether that captures um, the whole kind of spectrum of access. To be honest, with was you. that on Apple or that's the stats that I get from the Podbean uh, hosting site because Podbean okay. hosts the yeah hosts the podcast but as I said it's not clear if it picks up things like I don't know downloads and streams from Apple's site for example I'm why not, not sure not, yeah yeah but 4,000 downloads or hits uh, is pretty good I think mm. from nine episodes yeah yeah because we were unknown before that yeah so. yeah I mean this is all new new territory we hadn't done anything like this before and so we're pretty happy about that most of our hits come from the UK 68% of our hits that's 2751 hits from the UK not surprising really maybe being that way UK based um but we've also had a reasonable chunk from the US we've had 571 uh, we've also had hits from Canada Australia New Zealand but also other really interesting places Thailand Singapore Indonesia uh, the Bahamas. <laughs> People are listening to us in the Bahamas. <laughs> there you go. Topic all, all around the world. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Of global importance, of course. Uh, Tunisia, Hong Kong, Hungary, Iran. So I think that's something that I want to harness and build on for season two. I think we've discussed this before and we all agree that we'd like to try to get this a bit more internationalized, you know, mm. so perhaps get some guests to from... Um, inter the international scene from the US, Canada, etc., and get their expertise and get get that story from that context. That'd be nice because I mean, one thing to, to note is that all of our guests have been from the UK, haven't they? Mm -hmm. So far, um, and that's that's been absolutely fine. They've been amazing guests. I'm really, you know, yeah. obviously we're all very, um, you know, grateful for everyone's mm -hmm. time. So the first guest was Carrie Grant. So that was episode two. We talked with, so we had uh, Carrie uh, coming along and talking with Emma and I that day. And we talked about her experiences and her SEN experiences in schools. Uh, we talked about child mental health. Uh, and she was really, really good. I remember she was extremely passionate. She was so knowledgeable, you know, real... Um, champion i think for for change particularly with sen the the approach of sen you know i think she was saying that at schools and sen you know have just got a long way before they're really fully inclusive of neurodiverse children and focusing on child child mental health and and you know having the right kind of focus really uh so that that was a really interesting and that's been a particularly popular episode by the way yeah it's no wonder i mean there's a lot of a lot of members of our facebook support group they need a lot of help with um peels and things like that where the system has let them down and also where they haven't been provided proper information about 
things like EHCP. Yeah, so and, in, um, in the UK we have this thing called EHCP, yeah, yeah. the uh, Educational Health Care Plan, plan uh, which replaced the IEP, wasn't it? Yeah, which was yeah. the Individualised Educational Plan. Yeah. Um, I, we're, we're going through it at the moment, actually, the EHCP. We're p- completing all the paperwork and... Mm. Um, there's, you know, it's quite overwhelming, really, in, in terms of the paperwork required and and the support that you need. I mean, if you if you really don't have the professionals around you that are good and available, and people that get those meetings sorted, get those people to come together, and really make sure that it all comes together on this big set of paperwork then it's just not going to happen. And, and the council aren't going to fund anything and, and, and aren't going to support the schools for whatever, for whatever is needed to support the child if the AHCP isn't, isn't very good or isn't, isn't yeah. in. You know, that's, yeah. what, that's how it works over here. That's yeah. Get the AHCP going. It's a very intensive process. Um, and unless you know, you're very experienced, you know, you, you know what you're doing when you're going into it, for new families and carers, you must have somebody who's who's knowledgeable to to signpost you to guide you about what you should be putting in there. Yeah. Did your son do the? So when when your son was diagnosed, was it the IEP or the EHC? Must have been IEP. It right? was IEP because yeah. he was diagnosed very early on. He's eleven now. Yeah. When did he get his diagnosis? Uh, he was diagnosed about as early as you can because he's got a lot of additional needs um, and it was very obvious. So about age two, we saw a paediatrician or maybe two and a half. So about age two, I was lucky enough to bump into a speech and language therapist at a play group and um, she took me aside and she said, look, I've been interacting with your child and I'm a little bit concerned and we like... I'd like to offer you an appointment. So I was very lucky that that happened. Um, and did you then, have a, Did you have any concerns? At that I time? had a lot of concerns, yeah, but yeah. Um, I did, hadn't sort of come into contact with the right people to speed things along. Yeah. And the health visitor was a very lovely person, but she was very much like, "Oh, he'll catch up," you know, and things like that. But I could see from the milestones that he's supposed to be developing, and he just wasn't hitting any of his milestones at all I mean I know from right from a baby he didn't do things on time like he didn't uh, sit up he didn't crawl he he didn't walk till a lot later than his other peers and things like that yeah so this uh, speech and language therapist gave us an appointment very quickly and that's 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 so, I'm surprised by so, the way <laughs> yeah, well I mean, just getting an appointment quickly with a speech and language therapist well is... thing was his needs were such mm. that it was kind of a, an emergency, let's say, mm. yeah. <laughs> for her to be moved, moved that much. Right. She gave him a, a lot of priority, and yeah. um, she also informed the uh, one of the best paediatricians in the borough, and she got organised very quickly. Um, she the paediatrician was booked up for about six months, but we but that was very good that she got that as soon as possible she got us an appointment with them and they basically gave him a diagnosis on the spot of um, global developmental delay which means like all his developmental pathways delayed and she said she wants to see him again I think she saw him again in six months and again after that because there wasn't much change in his development uh, he he was developing physically um, I was helping him along like he was walking by then and stuff like that but his actual mental capacities were really, really far behind what they should have been, and he wasn't talking either. So, when um, when she gave you that diagnosis yeah. initially, you know, how did you feel? Do you remember? Did you feel relieved? Did you feel? Um, I was sort of prepared for it. It didn't come yeah. as a surprise because he, I was, we were not the norm. Like most people, it comes as a shock and mm. that kind of thing. Um, I did sort of. Obviously, I didn't want it to be happening, and there's a certain stage where you, you're in denial and things like that. But um, I'm a single parent, so I didn't really have much time to do that. Some parents have the luxury, <laughs> especially fathers, if the if the mother is doing most of the caring. Sometimes fathers uh, are in denial and 
don't want to accept it and they've got sort of the time and space to, to be in that place that's a nice segue to to link in episode three because that's oh not episode three episode four because we talk about this in episode four a little bit about you know far the way that fathers process uh the whole experience and you know the experience of the father you know uh father mental health etc and we that was a really nice episode with david grant and he talked about his his journey and yeah yeah and, it was a great uh, episode yeah yeah that was re- really really nice but uh, it must have been difficult uh, you know for you james you know just it is difficult yeah. when you're on your own but you have to put aside your feelings and you know realize that it's not about you it's about the child and you have to be there for them because they're not going to be able to pick themselves up without, you know, without your help. Um, I totally agree. Obviously, I totally agree with that. Um, but the thing is, you know, and this is something that happened personally with me a few months ago, is that you can have, you know, very negative experiences during the diagnosis process that can really potentially hurt you as a parent. And if if you're a hurt, or if if the way that the professional who's doing the diagnosis uh, communicates to you in a, in a in a way that really doesn't help, really, <laughs> perhaps you might say it can it can you know make it harder for the parent to to do what they want to do. That every parent yeah. wants to be there for their child. Yeah, it's definitely true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the language that they use it is very the language that they have to use. Maybe maybe it's sort of laid down that they have to use a very sterile and uh, mm, clinical sort of clinical and, mm. and sometimes they pathologize. Um, they look at the worst case scenarios maybe to prepare people. Um, and maybe we should think about, maybe it should be a debate about whether that should happen or whether there should be a more um, even-handed approach, a more positive approach to say... Um, what? Sorry, it's something yeah. that the charity, yeah. we, as a charity, yeah. the London Autism Group charity, this is something that we've talked about, the trustees have talked about, and something that we want to uh, have to do some work on, right? We've talked yeah, about sure. this. Yeah, because, you know, as, as James, as you're saying, you know, it is key, and the way they do it is maybe just, you know, by the textbook, and they're not thinking about, you know, the impact that that clinical cold way of communicating can sometimes negatively impact upon the way that the parents or parent um, or carer uh, processes the whole situation you know and I just think that that's critical you've got to have it's a very tough time when you're going through it for for, in terms of parental mental health it's a very very vulnerable time you know your child is is um you know, going through, you know, some developmental delays or, you know, isn't perhaps interacting or communicating in the way that you might expect. And, you you know, it can be a very confusing, scary time. So what you need is a diagnosis. Firstly, of course, you need a diagnosis that gives you the access to things. But what you also want, crucially, is a positive, healthy diagnostic experience. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, think yeah. part of that is that conversation. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to take away from the fact that it is a disability and um you know the effects are incredibly uh, far reaching and there are real life, challenges life can yeah. be incredibly challenging but it is just a, a difference at the end of the day yeah but that's not really set. that's the thing that's what i would like for them to say you yeah. know but that's not how they say it no so no. yeah it's a change really i mean this is something that happened to us a few months ago with my youngest son so he is now three and a half so just after he turned three i mean we knew from two about two that he was probably autistic i mean his eldest brother the oldest brother is autistic so there's a gen obviously we know the one thing that we do know about the sort of underlying causes of autism is that there is a genetic uh, that's the one thing that we can be sure of that, that you know that it, there it is genetically that you know there is a genetic underpinning so um when he was two you know we could it was likely you know because we we knew that, that our old eldest son was autistic you know and we were seeing what we're seeing with him you know was, for us it was fairly obvious and we we thought fine we've gone through the journey we know it's we know autism is of course you know can, does present lots of challenges because of the way that society is set up and all all the rest of it 
so we we know we knew all this. However, we we are we've gone through that journey. We know it's a difference. Um, we know there's plenty of reason to be hopeful, and we know that with the right support and the right way of approaching it, healthy way of approaching it, you know things can be fine, you know, or or okay or great maybe who knows the future is unknown right so we wanted a diagnosis we quickly got into that point where you know we're talking to the pediatrician he's getting his diagnosis and the pediatrician uh, spends about 20-25 minutes talking trying to communicate with him and not getting very far Uh, and afterwards she sits us down and the way she sat us down was that and the way she communicated the diagnosis to us was, was almost like she was breaking to us this awful news similar to the way that you might tell someone that they had cancer you know it's like you know I'm really 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 sorry um you know and she's almost crying by the way I mean she's almost tearful you can sit in a I mean my wife and I were very you know we're, we're you know fingers crossed give us the diagnosis give us that we know that's what we need we accept it we're fine about it yeah. you know but she's the one that you can see breaking inside she's upset for us and we oh you know, for people that, for parents that are perhaps going through it the first time and don't know perhaps, you know, any better, that can be very damaging. Just what that feeling. What message is that sending them? Yeah, I mean, of, yeah. of sort of pity. You know, that was the feeling, that was what we got really. It was a very pitiful diagnosis. It was like, I'm really, really, really sorry. You know, it is absolutely obvious, you know, your son, um, you know, has autism. You know, that's what the way she said it. And it was just very, as I say, very cold. It was very, not cold, it was very, um, you know, it was just in this sort of wrapped up with this layer, with this layer of pity and sadness, really, which really bothered me. But then what, what, what was the worst part of it was that she said, she said, look, I know that your oldest son is autistic. And she looked at us and she said, didn't you know, though, didn't you know that there was a, uh, there's a genetic component to autism? Didn't anyone tell you? As if to suggest that perhaps if we'd known, if we'd realised that there was a genetic link, um, that we wouldn't, we, that we shouldn't have, or we wouldn't have had our son. You know, I mean, that's just crazy. Of course, we knew that there's a genetic link, and just just the sort of assumption that you know we shouldn't, people shouldn't have <laughs> have more children if one of their child is already autistic because of the risk of the next one being autistic. That's just totally unethical and immoral and that really bothered me to be honest with you um don't you think that's just a terrible what terrible way to communicate to someone you know didn't you know you know it was almost like you're blaming us you know that we had this child i mean well i've heard also stories um of um the nurses that advise people uh when they go at the different stages of pregnancy um if the nurses know the history of the family and stuff like that, I've heard them trying to talk people into ter- having terminations and things like that. Wow. Um, other parents have told me. Doesn't it just mean that we've got such a long way to go? I mean, well, certainly the NHS does in the way they 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 certainly need re-educating on the matter and. Um, how can they suggest? Yeah. How can it be that they have this? this uh, view of autism that it that they view it as so bad that they would recommend or or suggest termination i mean that for me is just and also with the experience that that i had that we had yeah you know with with by the way a very senior pediatrician i should yeah, i should say that's quite depressing really. <laughs> yeah very depressing um i don't want to be too i, I don't want to be too to be honest with you, I don't want to be too critical of, of this paediatrician because although what she said and the way she said it, I think is highly worrying and problematic. She did give us, she did talk with us in an, in, in a, in a good way. She wasn't authoritarian, you know, some of the way, the way that she approached us and worked with, with us, some of it worked, you know, if I'm honest, you know, and you could see that she was empathic in her own way. It's just that it came through as pity you know I, you know so it's not I don't want to be totally critical but but ultimately I do think the way that she did it could be very harmful well, probably the guidelines yeah. they're following are so outdated yeah. now and things are moving very quickly with the way um, autistic people themselves are you know taking a hand in um, educating people 
Um, I know there's um, a group on Facebook called um, Autistic Inclusivity, and they only started up less than a year ago, and they're basically autistic people giving their time to help and educate and support parents with children with all kind, any any anywhere on the spectrum. Um, they've grown from nothing to about eight and a half thousand members. Eight and a half thousand in less than a wow. year. Wow! Wow! Um, and that's certainly changing minds, and you know, having a good they're, they're having a good effect on educating parents and and probably it would do a lot of good if um the nhs had this kind of training for their staff built in hearing from autistic people meeting them um and they'll see that it's not the end of the world and they shouldn't be uh propagating this with you know from the start <laughs> even before you know p- parents get to see their child develop they're already in a negative place before they start um, from the get-go you know and that shouldn't be where we're starting from we talked a little bit about this with emma dalmain's interview um, if you haven't listened to that already i really recommend it um she talked about uh, the fact that the the there's so far well, there's so much work she started the group um, yeah autistic uh, inclusivity yeah 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 emma dalmain has just done i mean she's a real in every sense of the word champion when it comes to Autistic rights, isn't she's she? She's a, a powerhouse. Of, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, she's got energy from somewhere, and I don't know where, but it's amazing. Yeah, it's very inspirational. Um, if you haven't listened to her interview, episode three, uh, please do because she's just done so much work with trying to push forward uh, with promoting autism, autistic people, and autistic rights and push back against autism stigma. It's just really incredible. I don't think she gets the credit that she deserves, if I'm honest, you know. I mean, the amount of work that she's done. Yeah, definitely. Just, I agree with you, 100%. Uh, absolutely incredible, really. So um, have a listen to, the, to that. But talking of autistic groups and Facebook groups, it uh, might be a nice segue to remind listeners of the London Autism Group, which is uh, the group that James and I run uh, with a couple of other administrators so that's for people who who live in London or around London we're not too pedantic with geography really although if you live in Scotland then we'd recommend perhaps a different (laughs) different group we try and keep it geographically unless you're moving to London unless you're moving to London yeah or or you spend you work in London and then go back to sleep in Edinburgh I don't know Um, but yeah if you live or spend time in London or, or, or around London and your life has been in any way whatsoever influenced by autism, whether you're uh, an autistic person yourself, uh, a parent, a professional, a researcher, whatever it is, that group would be um, a home for you. And that's been growing quite nicely. We haven't got 8,500 members. We've got um, just over 1,500 now. But we get a lot of views. So I was having a look at this the other day. In one month, we'll get over 35,000 views of posts that have been made in that past month. Yeah, I mean, there's never, a, there's never a day when it's sort of dead or anything. There's always something going on. There's always someone's got a question or people are sharing information or sharing an event that's going on in London. Uh, one of the things that, that is on that group, which uh, you, you would benefit from having a look at, is this amazing map that James has developed uh, and is easily accessible on the group and also via Google, right? You can just Google it, London Autism Services Map, I think, if you Google that. And all of the various services that are uh, relevant for autistic people uh, are listed there. Obviously, things change, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to keep track of services, new services that are opening, and the services are on a map. There's a lot of support services on there, um, both for families and autistic people. There's a lot of social groups on there. Well, I say a lot. There's what it, what it, I was able to find <laughs> uh, that is out there is on there, um, and I do welcome people to um, update me if there's anything new. Then I'll put it on there as well. It's amazing when you op- when you open the map, you just Im- immediately have the sense of shock. By how London, because you get this Google map 
uh, view of London, and there's just these pins. Well, how do you describe those little things? Are they yeah, they're pins. Yeah. There's these pins just everywhere Simples, across yeah. yeah across London. Nice. It's just amazing, James. I've got to tip my hat to you, mate. It's just absolutely amazing map that you developed and it's been accessed 31 and a half thousand times which is just great i mean that's that's, if, that's just fantastic that many times that we helped somebody that's great yeah yeah so if there's a service that you know of or perhaps run or involved with uh do let us know uh and we can put it on that map and it'll get get some exposure for you okay going back to the episode so we've talked about the first three or four episodes uh, episode five was with Carly Jones. She talked to us about um, the sort of specific issues that and challenges that come with autistic women, in particular, this issue of camouflaging and uh, being not diagnosed. You know, being missed out. I think uh, they autistic people call it masking now. This even um, a magazine been launched called Mask. Right. Um, which has lots of um, interesting articles about um, diagnosis in women and things like that. So if you have an autistic daughter or autistic relative um, or you, you're an autistic woman, then that would be a very nice episode to listen to because Carly's experience, Carly herself is autistic. Um, or if there's always been something about you that is a question mark to, in your head, then... You might want to think about that as well. It might set you thinking. Right. Um, Very true. There's a lot of women and girls were passed over. They thought autism was a male um, condition. So um, the sort of rules and the structure of diagnosing girls and women are only just being drawn up, really. They're constantly being redrawn. Um, So, yeah, that might be something some people want to think about as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you can also find a lot of information on Twitter with the hashtag um, actually autistic or asking autistics. That, that's a veritable sort of treasure trove of information on there. Yeah, great description. Yeah. I mean, that, that's how I learned so much. I mean, it, with, with my, you know, I learned a lot about what I know through my experiences, through my research as well, because I'm a researcher, but also uh, just from online you know going going online you know on twitter in particular following these hashtags that james is mentioning and just you know reading through the debates that are happening with the neurodiversity community it's absolutely um essential and it it, it is amazing the, um the um, the amount of debates that are happening now i mean you've also got the hashtag neuro, neurodiversity um because that's like the umbrella term for everyone that's affected by um, neurological difference. Um, there's a different issue being debated every day, and it's you know you could sit there for hours every night looking at it. Did you know. see the one with um, William Shatner? Did yes, you see that yes. one. Yeah. So um, un- unfortunately for me, because I'm a big Star Trek fan, I love Star Trek, especially the, the original. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Um, it turns out that William Shatner, again, this is something I would never have known had I not been on Twitter and mm. just sort of keeping an eye on the the debates and discourse that go on. Uh, it turns out that William Shatner is a big uh, proponent and supporter of Autism Speaks and mm. their kind of fundamental mission, which is in part to treat autism. Or to eradicate or, it from or, the or, face of the earth. Yeah, yeah, or to entirely remove it. Um and he's, he seems, I mean, I, I don't want to talk with complete confidence about it, but it seems like he, he represents that side, right? And he's had a lot of pushback from the neurodiversity community. He's, he's definitely bought into the arguments of it, and he maybe is ignorant of the other side of the argument, you know. And so instead of, what I noticed was instead of him perhaps, well, I don't know, I don't want to judge too quickly, but he's blocked a lot of people. You know, a lot of people keep complaining, oh, you keep these blocked me. And and that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Because that yeah. really stifles debate, it's you not, know. Some people don't want to have a debate. Yeah. They just, uh... But, the, you know, the point is that just that fact, you know, about William Shatner's perspective on this, the fact that there, there was an issue, what the issue's about, you know, uh, why it's important, 
you, you know, I just would never have known about that other other than through Twitter, to be honest with you. I mean, that's not the kind of thing that you're going to see on yeah, it's national not on news. news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. anything about autism yeah. news. But that's how you learn, isn't it? That's yeah. how you, through these, and similarly through, I'm, I'm proud to say through our group and other groups, I'm, I'm, people always say, you know, I've learned more from this group or whatever group, Facebook group, uh, I'm just talking with other parents, autistic people and asking questions, you know, in a friendly, yeah. respectful way. I've learned more about it and progressed in terms of the way I see things and feel about things through our group than often through professional services. Oh, definitely. Um, I remember the first time I ever went to, um, I took Daryl to, um, it, it was in the days when we didn't have large Facebook groups mm. and it was like a local face, a local Facebook group for autistic families uh, in Surrey somewhere. And they've got this great um, place called the Thames Valley Adventure Playground. It's a massive it's got a lot of facilities for special needs children and uh, it's completely kitted out, you know, um, for them. Um, and I took my son and um, it was the first time I experienced that, that I was with, um, I saw other autistic adults, I saw other autistic children, I saw met um, other families who were going through the same thing as me. Um and I came away feeling a lot better, you know, that I wasn't just on my own, isolated. Mm. Um, and that's, hopefully, that's um, how people feel when they'll come to our Facebook support group. Um, I've had, had a lot of um, comments from parents um, and thank yous from parents. Yeah. And that issue of isolation, loneliness is just terrible, isn't it? I mean, it's just poison. Um but, you know, when we get together online or in, in person, it can really help just remind you you're not alone. You're part of a big, big supportive community. There's some really nice people out there, you know, that that are willing to give their time and, and um, just talk uh, and support in any way they can. And, and so tap into that community if you wish and you i think you'll you'll you can't really lose really can you it's, it's yeah, no harm to it not only us yeah. um our children as well yeah um from the experience of um being in in a, a safe place a, a place where the adults all are very knowledgeable and um we went yeah. yeah james and i went to um a community event organized by autistic inclusive meets a couple of months ago again that's one of emma dalmain's uh, organization she's the she's the founder right i mean she she's the founder and, and lead of that and that was just such a good experience because there were um lots of people from across the community lots of uh, well-known autistic advocates but just you know just just a friendly safe space for autistic people and and uh, uh family members just to come together and we went to this um uh house what was that house name again charlton house charlton house yeah it was a beautiful house and we were in the grounds having a picnic and it was just a lovely you know yeah. i'd never met a lot of these people before i'd met some of them but a lot of them i hadn't and we just i think we just had all the sense of belonging and it was really nice i don't know it was yeah. uh it was nice to meet people and and just feel that feel you know feel that you're part of this community and and i again i'd encourage people to access those sorts of events if if they're available and yeah i mean we came away talking about there should be a lot more events like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. hopefully we can arrange things like that perhaps for the charity yeah, and going forward definitely Next couple of episodes on the podcast, we had a podcast with Anna Kennedy, OBE. Anna Kennedy is also a big autism campaigner um, and champion, but similar to Emma uh, in terms of the amount and drive, amount of work she does and the drive. I mean, Anna Kennedy's drive mm. it is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, I mean, she set up schools, uh, award shows. Autism's Got Talent, which is um, yeah. a big, big thing now, actually. So sort of autism's version of Britain's Got Talent or America's Got Talent or whatever it is. Mm. And that's always a big, successful, important, impactful event. 
the Autism Hero Awards. I'm actually one of the judges for that. She's invited me to judge the Autism Brilliant. Hero. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go along. I say, where's James Gordon's name on this list? That's <laughs> what I'm going to say. Because <laughs> if there's one hero, it's definitely James. We'll have a chat about it later. That's what a hero would say that, wouldn't they? Um, <laughs> So that was a great episode. I mean, if you if you just want to be inspired to do something positive for the community yourself, then have a listen to that episode. That's that's really really um, inspiring. We also talked with Dr. Emily Lovegrove, who's um, uh, an expert in anti-bullying. Um, she's a consultant in anti-bullying and anti-bullying strategy. She's also an academic, and that was a really important episode because bullying is a real problematic issue is one of the worst things actually bullying uh, and the consequences but one of the one of the things that I came away learning more about from that interview was just the importance of of not seeing bullying in a black and white way I mean that was Emily's kind of mantra really which is really important that's a very kind of gray issue there's a lot of lot of things going on both for the victim of bullying and the bullier as well yeah, and also yeah. the the importance of society and and culture, uh, and how that interplays with the way the bull- bulliers are viewed, and then the way that the bullier does what he or she does. Do you know what I mean? So there's interplay between all sorts of uh, things going on. It's basically just not black and white. But how difficult it is not to see it as a black or white thing because it's such an emotive thing, you know, especially when. It's your child who's been a victim uh, yeah. of bullying. That she was saying uh, maybe the the way to deal with it is to look at why the person is is doing the bullying and try and address that the problems there. Yeah, the sort of social problems behind it. Yeah, maybe the problems at home or. Yeah, I really, really learned a lot from that conversation actually because it just again undermines how important we as a society, more generally view and treat people and the impact that the way we approach things that we can just can, make assumptions about yeah, things and then yeah, that becomes yeah. in our mind it's ingrained as a fact yeah if we don't break that mm. that approach then it's just going to perpetuate and continue and build up and emily's just a really good proponent and voice of the importance of breaking that chain and and creating change essentially uh, so if you have had any experience either as a victim or perhaps maybe maybe it is that somebody in your family has been the bullier or maybe you've been the bullier you know whatever it is if you've had any kind of contact with this issue that's a good episode to listen to yeah. uh, i'd recommend that and then we had an episode with georgia pavlopoulou who is an expert in sleeping issues among autistic people and that was a really good episode wasn't it i thought that was really interesting about the risk factors of poor sleep the consequences of poor sleep how general your general kind of life and the anxieties that come with life can impact upon sleep and sleeping routines and then the impact that that has then on anxiety is kind of two-way street yeah i mean i was talking about that earlier before we started the podcast uh, yeah son still has issues with sleep mm. although that you know sometimes when things have been you know very very bad um you get a sense of perspective so at the moment um about 50 percent of the time he'll sleep through and sometimes you have to realize that that's the best you can do and that's the best he'll, he'll be able to do and you have to be grateful for that but you know and unless you've been <laughs> pushed right to the edge unless you've been to the the point where they're not sleeping at all you won't realize um you know what that's like but um yeah and, and um you know it's important to have a strategy and um and that that podcast really uh, it's really it looks really really helpful I, I remember listening with interest about it i wish that I, I wish i was wishing that i'd have been on it as well you know yeah i've had yeah. some things to say um i was thinking afterwards oh georgia must get uh, amazing sleep <laughs> she must know how to manage her day so effectively and knows all the risk factors that prevents them she must just get amazing sleep <laughs> so uh yeah do listen to that 
And I, uh, I definitely wish you luck on that one, James, because we've been quite fortunate with sleep. Our children, on the whole, sleep you know reasonably well. And obviously, we've we've had issues, but on the whole, you know, everything's been reasonably well. But I, I've no, I know many other people who also struggle with this and the massive impact it has on people's well-being and just the ability to cope through the day and it, it has I, I, just, I just do think that sleep is just such an important medicine do you know what I mean you know we need that medicine to push through and do what we need to do and it's a, such a it just holds you back when you don't get that um I think maybe we should revisit it at some stage definitely yeah um have her back on the podcast yeah maybe we should do a podcast at 4am in the morning when, 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 <laughs> night, when we're awake night owls. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah let's do a 4am podcast and then finally we had this amazing interview of joanna grace that you did james uh thanks for that and joanna grace being the founder of the sensory projects and she's an expert in all things sensory really isn't she yeah. um and i learned a lot listening to that I mean one of the things that struck me when I listened to it was just the fact that we have all these various senses I think well how many did she say that we possibly have 33 33 yeah and that we're just very fixated on certain ones do you know what I mean but, yeah but yeah. if that's the sort of she, I think she was trying to say that it's a sort of social construction as to which ones we prioritize and which ones we well yeah and um I've got uh, my son's um got a diagnosis of epilepsy and through that, I'm having to look at his, the others, some of the other senses that we never hear about um, because I have to understand why he's having seizures and things like that. So um, there's sense sensory system for um, detecting uh, heat and um, the way the body uh, regulates heat and cools itself down and things like that, which is definitely not working with my son. Um, so um, there are things... there. Are, a certain seizures that um, children will have as they're growing up, um, where they'll they'll overheat, um, and that's perfectly normal. And normally they grow out of it. But with my son, he's not going to grow out of it. So I always have to keep an eye on whether he's been out in the sun too long, and things like that, and how much he's having to drink, and things like that. Another common problem is um, to do with constipation with them. Um, our children um, we get a lot of uh, families on the on the Facebook group the support group asking for support about that and um, there's a sensory system called interoception which is um, how we we can sense the internal workings of our body and how all of those systems work work together and that's another issue with my son probably um, <laughs> there's so many senses isn't there I mean I didn't even know before I went on this journey I didn't know I'd not heard of the sense proprioception I'd, I'd, I'd never heard of it well that's um, I hadn't heard of it yeah. until um, but it's such an issue with my and, until, both of my um, children I came in contact with an uh, occupational therapist yeah me too uh, and I think um, if your children are, ha- are having these um displaying sort of odd behaviors you know you might you might think of it like that uh where they might look look like they're self-harming or or self-stimulating excessively and things like that a lot of our children have sensory issues and it's it's um it's very helpful to get in touch and get an appointment with an ot definitely um and they'll do an assessment they'll usually if you're lucky they'll come to your home um and they'll do a whole assessment about um the environment that they're that you're living in your children are living in and um the whole environment can can be a problem you know if it's if it's too vividly colored or there's uh too much clutter that can all have an overwhelming effect and same with Visual sti- uh, visual stimulation, like if if the light if there's too much lighting or not enough, mm. auditory um, as well. And they'll put in place uh, the OT will put in place a thing called a sensory diet, where there'll be um, usually you'll plan out uh, what's different sensory activities uh, for your child. So it might be a messy play, where they get a, a certain allocated amount of time to have that sensory stimulation. It might be some kind of exercise, intense exercise, like on an, bouncing on an exercise ball um, or on a trampoline. 
uh, to get that those sensory systems regulated. Um, it might be to do with proprioception, which is what you're talking about, where they, you might um, give them deep pressure massage, or you might wrap them up in elasticated um, sheet, and they feel they can feel the sort of release, and they they do get relief from it. Um, and the, the proprioception means that they can um, they're better able to uh, feel where their body is in in the spatial yeah. terms. That's and, right. That's proprioception, all, isn't it? Yeah. All the joints and everything. Yeah. Uh, it it's works better. Sense of where you are within the yeah. space around you, isn't it? I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, Joanna was talking about the importance of early exposure to, or, you know, as many kind of sensory experiences as possible, wasn't she? Yeah. She was sort of saying that if you give your child a whole range of sensory experiences and you do a lot of repetition as you were saying mm. in that in that conversation then what you do is you build these neural synaptic pathways and connections right and she was sort of describing it in an analogy of a forest uh and um as you build these kind of neuro neurological synaptic connections your the forest it, to sort of describe it would be like the, the there are initial kind of tracks in the grass perhaps uh as you experience something yeah uh, but then as you experience it more the tracks become bigger pathways and then as you experience it more and more the pathways become uh roads and then yeah, super yeah. highways so it's like and that's a, how the brain that repetition of doing something mm. and teaching learning a task fascinating stuff it's a really interesting analogy isn't yeah, it yeah. Uh, and it just sort of reminded me you know the importance of getting my three-year-old you know just continue our efforts to give him a nice rich uh experience you know and just get get him exposed to different situations of course we've got to keep an eye on what is making him happy and unhappy do you know what i mean it can't be just as blunt as okay let's just put him in every situation going but at the same time it's very important not to isolate your child and be worried about social stigma or being judged Obviously, it'd be reasonable to be worried about it, but try to push back against it. Because if you push back and you go out and you put your son or daughter in different, or whoever it is, in different environments, different contexts, then that could be potentially really useful neurologically in terms of learning and sensory learning. And you can find things that your child will will love, potentially. You can work out what they like and what they don't like. Yeah, and with the the kind of sensory diet, you'll need... To sort of, it's sort of a tailor-made program where you'll be able to pick things that you'll be able to to find out what would be beneficial for your child to experience yeah. and things like that. So that was really, really interesting stuff. So I mean, we've covered quite a lot of ground in season one, I think. Yeah. But there's so much to cover, I think, for season two, isn't there? And we're excited about it. Um, when do you think we're going to kick off season two? When when should we? release the first one it'll probably be after the summer though won't it to be fair um it'll probably be around september maybe episode one yeah it depends. season two it depends um i i definitely want um some autistic advocates maybe from america something like that there's yes. some people that we have in mind so yeah we have in mind but i'd like to talk about some some other topics as well that we haven't perhaps talked about as much as we could have but I mean we've touched upon a lot of the different things but I do think a, an episode on epilepsy in particular would be really good yeah because um, yeah. it's an important issue and we haven't um, we haven't really touched haven't, on no. the epilepsy that most people experience because my son is quite different to most um, most um, cases of epilepsy can be managed by medication quite well I'd like to have an episode about older autistic adults as well uh, because this is a population that often gets overlooked for various uh, reasons. But I'm talking about autistic people aged 50 and above, essentially. Uh, oh. I'd love to have an episode. And we, you know, we've we've talked about that, haven't we? That we. I'm sure we could get some of the group members, the Facebook group members. Yeah. We've got some older members. Yep, yeah. So that's another episode. I'd like to do an episode about culture and ethnicity, actually. You know, one on an episode just looking at the the autism stigma and attitudes 
and the interface between that and culture, cross-cultural differences, that'd be really, that'd be really nice. Um, Well, I got, I've had quite a few people asking me exactly what the podcast is for. I mean, I've got, we've got a little definition on the website. Uh, I'll read it out here. The podcast aims to improve our understanding of autism, boost acceptance, reduce autism stigma, and generate impactful, transformative ideas ranging from everyday advice to thoughts on policy, practice, and wider sociocultural challenges. So I think that's our sort of philosophy about what we're trying to aim to do. We're hoping that we've made some some impact, some headway on those. Yeah, because... um... I think it's all about education and um, no matter how knowledgeable a person is, I mean, we've learned a lot from our guests um, and hopefully the listeners have learned a lot as well. Education and communication and just conversation, you know, I think those are crucial things and podcaster suits that, I think, quite nicely. So we hope to continue, well, we will definitely be continuing with season two, but we hope to continue in a positive, impactful way. I think we've done, we've been doing reasonably well with in terms of season one yes yeah um okay so i think we will leave it there for the end of season one it's been a great ride i've really enjoyed i've learned so much doing it uh both from the conversations themselves but also just the production side of things putting you know the logistics putting this sort of thing together and what's involved it's been a fascinating journey and I'm really, we're all really, really excited to bring you season two, which we hope will be even bigger, better, more impactful. Um, and we really appreciate everybody's support. And we hope that you continue to enjoy the podcast. So bye from me. And bye from me. 